0: When Ann Madison noticed her hearing was declining at age 66, she struggled. She had always prided herself on being a savvy healthcare consumer, but when it came to hearing loss, what were her options? Ads for hearing aids seemed predatory. Visits to an audiologist for objective professional advice about how to address hearing loss weren't covered by Medicare. And since Medicare also didn't cover hearing aids, the price tag was far out of her reach. Ann's story is a common one. Hearing loss affects over 40 million Americans and is understood to be the leading risk factor contributing to the development of dementia. Because a pair of hearing aids are prohibitively expensive, less than 20% of people who would benefit from hearing aids actually have them. Millions of Americans could potentially improve their health and lead better lives if hearing aids and related hearing care services were more affordable and easily accessible.
1: That was ear, nose, and throat physician Frank Lynn reading from the first opinion essay he wrote with fellow physicians Charlotte Yeh and Christine Cassell titled, Making Hearing Aids Affordable Isn't Enough. Older Adults Also Need Hearing Care Services. We're also joined by Ann Madison, whose struggle getting hearing aids and services Frank describes in the essay. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Frank and Anne. Thanks for having us, Patrick. Thank you. So how did you two connect or meet? (laughs)
0: <laughs> so um, uh, I am, uh, I'm at Hopkins, and uh, along with my close colleagues, Carrie Neiman, who's also an ENT physician, uh, for the last several years, we've been running a study throughout Baltimore called the Baltimore HEAR study, uh, which is basically a study for how we can deliver hearing care more affordably and accessibly in the community. Uh, Anne was one of our clear success stories very early on, having participated in our pilot, uh, basically getting uh, hearing care directly in the community with a trained uh, healthcare uh, community healthcare worker. Not even a real, not even a physician or a direct audiologist. And then since then, and Anne has been one of our community healthcare workers who has herself now been delivering hearing care directly in the community uh, to, to older adults uh, in a much larger uh, randomized control trial of the Hearers Intervention, uh, which has actually just finished up uh, late last year.
1: So, and did somebody just come knocking on your door one day?
2: Well, I live in a, a senior community, and we have a, 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 a person called the services coordinator, and she's basically, I think, a social worker. And um, uh, someone from Hopkins got in touch with our services coordinator back when this was getting started. And um, uh, so I I was interested. The woman approached me because she knew that I was hard of hearing. And um, uh, another woman and I uh, became participants in that study. And that was way back, like 2014. I mean, it was a while ago Uh, and and got through that successfully uh, uh, and then went on from there.
1: Very cool. So at the time that Somebody from Hopkins came knocking were did you already had you already noticed you were losing some of your hearing
2: oh yes uh uh i I guess I started early i I started in my my fifties um um notoriously with the uh the microwave uh which is a story I tell a lot uh just simply stopped beeping for me and uh, it does not beep to this day, and I thought that it was uh <laughs> Broken and it wasn't broken. I was having hearing loss. So that's uh, what started me down the path.
1: Did that immediately urge you to take action or did you let things go for a bit?
2: I filed it away. I mentioned it to my doctor at that point, my internist, when I went in for uh, something else, but I didn't follow up on it. I don't know whether I was afraid to find out what was going on in my hearing or, uh, he didn't follow up on it and I didn't follow up on it. So it just lay dormant and got worse for, uh, uh, a number of years. You talked
1: with someone from NPR in a very lovely story. And you mentioned that it, it sort of made your world shrivel. How did that happen?
2: It did. I, I, my husband died in, uh, 2011. So just 10 years ago, uh, this month. And, um, uh, after that, I began to have trouble with things like hearing in, um, uh, at the movies, you know, going to the movies, uh, or going to church. I found myself talking to people, you know, conversing with people and they would say something and I would just kind of go, mm. uh, and I remembered my grandmother doing that, who was hard of hearing. Um, so hmm. it came on gradually And I think the catalyst was probably the loss of my husband, but uh, uh, it impacted uh, all kinds of things. Uh, Watching TV, I got shy about having my television on because I had to turn it up, you know, so loudly. And moving into an apartment, I was afraid I was going to annoy my my neighbors. Um, uh, So it was kind of like the lights going out one by one uh things i enjoyed I, I wasn't doing as much anymore that must have been frustrating it it was it was uh depressing is what it was kind of continued that way so by the time uh the Baltimore here study got hold of me i- boy, i was more than ready you know I'm, I'm like do whatever here I am, do whatever you want um uh you know i'm i'm uh, more than happy to to participate and uh, uh, indeed, it was. It was really helpful. I got to understand what was going on in my in my head, in my ears. Um, uh, I got to understand that uh, I wasn't the only person that this was happening to, uh, and um, uh, I got to actually do something about it.
0: Frank, is Anne's story a common one? You know, Patrick. Unfortunately, yes. I mean. Um in my role, you know, one hat I wear uh, is as, as still as an ENT surgeon. Where I still see patients every every week, um, and uh, this is uh, the stories and the patients I see are, are rife with the same examples of, uh, you know, gradually, slowly coming on, and then noticing subtle things, uh, missing words, missing out on conversations, not likely to go out as much, and. The problem is, is so so often it's, it's insidious. So some people, unfortunately, like to sort of blow it off, saying, "Oh, it's not me; it's my it's my wife mumbling at me all the time. It's not my problem." And others just get gradually cocooned away more and more. Um, hearing loss is it's one of those things. It's 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 very much a normal process of aging. Uh, essentially, nearly two thirds, two of every three adults over seventy has a hearing loss. And I think because that unfortunately tends to see it since it's uh, very much a, in some ways a normal process of aging It hence must be an inconsequential part of aging. Uh, and that's the thought process that went on for many, many, I would say even decades, just until the last five, six, seven years with research that we've been leading here at Hopkins and, and, and many of our colleagues, just increasingly showing that uh, that hearing loss, its uh, while it's a normal process of aging, it is certainly not without consequence. And hence the, the research now linking things with hearing loss with dementia and other healthcare outcomes. That uh, for, I think, any, any clinician in the field who, have been, who has been taking care of patients with hearing loss, they, they sort of intuitively knew that was probably the case because those are the stories we got all the time.
1: But I think to listeners, the a connection between hearing loss and physical, other physical problems or mental problems is going to come as a surprise.
0: Yeah, you know, I think, Patrick, I think uh, intuitively a lot of people want to think initially, oh, it's just, um, of course, it's linked with things, let's say, like dementia, for instance, because just people are getting older. Uh, but that's clearly, that's that's not very interesting, right? That's like saying uh, white hair is linked with dementia, right? Which, it, you know, of course, it is in a way, but not <laughs> not, not, not in a causal way. Uh, yeah, yeah. But increasingly, this is the big change in the last just 5, 10 years now. A lot of the research... Um, that we've been leading in others around the world now, linking, let's say, hearing loss with dementia. And importantly, we're understanding that, uh, well, hearing loss is just one of the many risk factors of dementia, but we're understanding it is arguably the dominant one. And the reason why we are understanding that now is because of the underlying, uh, the mechanisms through which we we now understand how hearing loss could impact dementia, namely through uh, when you can't hear well, basically means your brain's constantly having to work a lot harder to decode that much more garbled sound. And that can take a toll on the brain. And that gets the idea of what we call cognitive load or cognitive overload, per se, is that your brain's constantly having to spend more energy Uh, dealing with hearing when that energy could have been, that brain energy per se, could have been used to help uh, protect against um, other things that lead to dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. You know, that's one idea. Um, A second idea, which is related, but actually distinct, is the idea that hearing loss, in and of itself, can actually trigger changes in terms of the brain structure and hence the brain function. Namely, if you can't hear very well, what we see now in people we follow them for many, many years is that parts of the brain literally shrink faster in those uh, in those people with hearing loss versus those with normal hearing. And it gets the idea if you don't if you have sensory deprivation, in those parts of the brain uh, those parts of the brain shrink faster. So sort of much the colloquialism uh, you know use it or lose it. And finally, the third most important idea for how hearing loss could contribute to dementia risk is something that Anne just mentioned herself, just the gradual process of being a little more isolated, a little more lonely. And in turn now, we, we've long known that that social isolation, remaining socially engaged is hugely important for maintaining your cognitive health. So those, um, those three underlying pathways, um, there's a lot of evidence for it. And yet no one, until just the, little, the last five to 10 years had begun really robustly studying whether or not um, hearing loss leads to fast rate of dementia, and increasing all the studies now over the last five, six years have, have shown this, such that um, you know, just a few years ago, the Lancet Commission, uh, which is one of the major medical journals around the world, published this major review and conclude that hearing loss is, is single-handedly the largest and the most dominant risk factor uh, for dementia compared to all the other known risk factors like high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, and things like that.
1: I think that's gonna
0: blow a lot of listeners' minds yeah and you know I think I think it serves as a wake-up call. Um, the really interesting thing about hearing loss is that from a public health perspective, if we think that dementia is important, which I think everyone feels dementia is important, um, it's a really interesting risk factor because first of all, hearing loss is really common. It's not a rare risk factor one in a thousand. This is the majority of older adults. at the same time, it's a risk factor for which there are established interventions, namely things like hearing aids. Um, and likewise, those interventions, namely hearing aids, come with no risk right There's no downside to using a hearing aid and already they're widely underutilized. So mm. that's a really from a public health standpoint, I think that's why all of a sudden hearing loss is getting so much attention from even from Congress nowadays and from the national academies, uh, which is the subject of the stat article, um, mainly because of just how important it may be as a public health target for us to really improve the lives of literally tens of millions of older adults for intervention that comes with, you know, essentially zero risk. It's not like taking a risky drug or something like that. There is no risk. There's only positive upside. And we're increasingly understand the upside may be quite large, in fact.
1: So, Anne, it sounds like you were ready to embrace that upside when you first um, met the people from Hopkins. Uh, Had you wanted to get hearing aids before that?
2: Yes. One thing I've found when you move into a community with older people uh you get on two mailing lists, the hearing aid mailing list and the, the cemetery lots of mailing list. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently you're supposed to just go down gradually and then you know and die um uh and be a profit center. But um I would get those circulars and, and uh uh I I almost always would investigate the cost. I would always make some inquiry and the you know the word would come back um uh, in my case, it, uh, they would always estimate somewhere between 4000 maybe $4,500 for my hearing aids. And, um, uh, you know, I just, I'm at the point where I can't just whip out the, the visa and say here, you know, put it on, put it on my charge. Um, uh, and, um, easy payment plans are not so easy when you are on a tight budget. So it was Uh, it was just not possible. I was, there wasn't any way I could do it. I couldn't even be irresponsible and do it. So, uh, uh, and uh, my name is Legion. I would, I would bet you two thirds of the people in this building are in the exact same boat.
1: So, Anne, when you got your first hearing aids, were they the high end ones that you and Frank are talking about or were they something different?
2: They were something quite different. Um, uh, the the devices that uh, uh, we used in Baltimore Hears are uh, relatively low in cost, and they are really not hearing aids. Uh, they're not uh, uh, they're not recognized uh, as hearing aids. They're called a <clears throat> excuse me personal sound amplification product, which is a mouthful. And what it is is a uh, uh, a device that takes the sound and amplifies it. Uh, Before it gets to your ear, while in in the case of the one that I got, uh, enabling you to have some adjustments. Mine adjusts for uh, everyday um, uh, restaurant, which is any situation where there's noise, you know, ambient noise uh, and um, um, entertainment, it's called, which is kind of a kind of a surround sound thing uh, that you could use at a lecture or a. Concert hall, or a movie, or in church, um, uh, and I it has ten volume levels, so you can uh, get it. Uh, you can get it pretty nicely adjusted, and it's not. Uh, it's not faultless. There are things about it to this day that annoy me, uh, but I'm still using this device, and I think uh, if you wanted to buy one, I'm not sure how much. It would cost you, but it would be closer to the five hundred dollar range than it would to the thousand dollar range. And they can help a lot of people. They can't help everybody, because there are all kinds of reasons people lose their hearing, or or are are hard of hearing, or are deaf, and and uh, you know they they need to be uh, worked with in some other way. But for people like me who are just you know losing those nerve cells dying off. Um, it can be of a great deal of help. So
1: they they made a difference for you?
2: Yeah, I use it uh, quite regularly, and I had been able to adapt some of its functions to other parts of my life. When I was still driving, I used to use the restaurant setting uh, when I when I got behind the wheel because it it helps you uh, uh, focus on on uh, the loud noises that you need to hear when you're driving, like sirens or or, you know, whistles or whatever. So, um, it's been very good for me and I'm not ready to give it up yet. I'll probably know when I am.
1: Frank, you mentioned in your essay that Medicare long didn't cover hearing services or hearing aids. Is that part of the kind of perverse logic that our eyes and our ears and our teeth aren't really part of our bodies?
0: Yeah. You know, um, Patrick, historically, I mean, um, it maybe a segue to this idea and another one is the idea, you know, quote, why are hearing aids so expensive and how's Anne doing well with one that's quote, not even a hearing aid, but at a lot lot cheaper value. So there, there are two things I understand about that have currently set the stage for why hearing care and Medicare and uh, hearing aids are so expensive now. The first one, as you alluded to, is just in, in 1965 when the Medicare came to be with the Social Security Act. Um, back then, uh, the way Medicare was designed was mainly to protect seniors from um, sort of hospital expenses. So uh, the the outpatient stuff wasn't really prioritized, uh, namely at that point too. Uh, hearing aids weren't really fully available yet. There weren't really robust options to treat hearing loss. Uh, hearing loss wasn't considered to be a priority by any means. Right? People were worried about other things back then. And instead, only things that were covered were basically the diagnostic services of an audiologist, but none of the treatment services, which, you know, again, in uh Right now, at least, it seems seems a travesty. But admittedly, back then, it sort of made sense back then. So that's why, to this day, audiologists can be reimbursed for doing testing. But sadly enough, they aren't covered to provide any treatment services around hearing loss. And it seems like a pretty bitter paradox, a bitter pill to swallow that you can see see audiologists be told you have hearing loss and yet to do nothing about it.
1: That means, let's say you're diagnosed with hearing loss. You go and get hearing aids, and you need help figuring them out. The audiologist doesn't get paid for any of that
0: work. No, absolutely not. So audiologists get paid to do your hearing test, and that's it. Not not even teach you about hearing, tell you what it means, how it can impact you, how to communicate better, anything around a hearing aid, zip, zero, none. The second other big piece of federal legislation which led to why – Hearing aids are still so expensive. Is in 1977, there was actually a joint congressional FDA task force uh, which put together special regulations to regulate hearing aids. And the reason for that was throughout the 60s, early 70s, there actually, as hearing aids came to be, there was a lot of abuse. There was uh, door-to-door salespeople literally going around selling hearing yeah. aids, which were honestly abusive. They were they didn't work. There were, they were uh, they was rife rife with fraud. So um, the regulations in 77 put together by the FDA. Said that hearing aids, as medical devices, which is appropriate, could only be essentially sold through a licensed provider, and they couldn't be sold essentially over the counter. Which basically means that audiologists became the gatekeepers to hearing aids. The only way audiologists can make essentially revenue by helping someone with hearing loss, they sell the hearing aids at a premium because they include all their services in there. At the same time, even the wholesale cost of hearing aids are high to audiologists because. It's fundamentally it's, – it's a low-volume, high-margin business model. There are five mm-hmm. hearing manufacturers which control about 99% of the world's hearing marketplace because it's a, it's a very constrained gatekeeper model of a market. But I gather that's
1: changing now since 2017 and more recent things. Can you explain that?
0: That's the exciting stuff, Patrick, is that two converging pieces of legislation, one's already happened, one will hopefully happen in the next few months, um, that are both that are both set to already correct those historical anachronisms or, quote-unquote, I would say, injustice now. But what, what's happened with that law that got passed in 2017 is that it requires the FDA to re-regulate hearing aids, namely to create a specific regulatory category for hearing aids that could be explicitly sold over-the-counter directly to consumers, it does not have to go through a, uh, an ENT like me or an audiologist can be sold directly to the consumer, and for which those hearing aids will be regulated by the FDA for safety and efficacy. Namely, they would have certain performance standard on sound quality and, and, and maximum sound output. So that law went to effect in 2017. Uh, it gave the FDA three years to do this because it's actually not easy to do this. Um, the FDA actually blew through their deadline, unfortunately, in August 2020 because of, they they attributed it because of COVID. But the exciting thing is just uh, last, I'm sorry, in June actually, The FDA officially announced on their spring docket that they're gonna release these regulations later this year. And that was coupled with, just a few weeks later, uh, President Biden in a White House executive action uh, order to basically improve competition economy. One of the specific um, uh, items that was called out in executive action was uh, requesting the FDA immediately releases within the next 120 days. What this will allow then is uh, in the next, let's say next year, as these regulations finally go into effect, Companies like Samsung, Apple, Bose will finally be able to, for the first time, make hearing aids and they can sell them directly to consumer. So those companies are going to want to make a buck. Do you think they'll still be affordable
1: for people, you know, so that Anne might might uh, take a trip to her local Apple store or Bose store and and get a new pair without breaking the Visa card?
0: Yeah, you know, Patrick, I, I certainly hope so. And the reason why I say I hope so and I believe so is because fundamentally, it's um there's competition. The technology involved in a pair of AirPod Pros or any decent of these you know, earbud hearables is actually not that much different than a hearing aid in terms of the actual component parts sometimes. So let's say even if the uh, AirPod Pros had to be twice the cost to make it more like a hearing aid, that makes it $500, <laughs> right? Hmm. So I think, again, that's possible because of economies of scale when you have a market which is the consumers themselves as opposed to a gatekeeper namely an audiologist ent like me who has to provide it buy it and then resell it to consumers i think we're all relatively confident those costs will drop precipitously because of just the market scale and the competition
1: so and instead of seeing predatory ads or circulars coming into your mail um let's say this sea change that frank is describing happens would you be willing to go to an apple store or a samsung store and Try out a new pair of uh, hearing aids.
2: I would. They would. They would have to beat me off with a stick. I would be there, <laughs> and I would be trying to decide which was better, the Apple or the Samsung. Um, uh, I have. I have opinions on that subject. Um, <laughs> uh, I've spent some time uh, thinking. Actually, yeah, it's very entertaining about. Um, are there ways that I could use a pair of earbuds and my phone uh, to to have, you know, two two hearing hearing devices uh, uh, and do better. In other words, could I like carry this all around with me and and um, uh, use it when I need to hear something? Um, I don't think so quite yet, but uh, uh, it certainly is good technology. So,
1: so it, you know, if there are any developers listening in, you you just gave somebody a great idea.
2: Oh, you bet! I I I would uh, I would be lined up. For, I could tell you all about that. You know, I could spend an hour. So uh, we won't.
1: (laughs) And so, Frank, with these over-the-counter devices, Medicare won't be covering those, correct?
0: Yeah. So this is, um, you know, the second piece of uh, of major legislation, which is not a done deal like the -the Over-the-Counter Hearing Act of 2017, but which is well, hopefully getting inching closer is... um, the inclusion uh, and changing Medicare now to include actually hearing care service and hearing aids. So over the last few years, and I said that's essentially writing a historical wrong that was brought about in 1965, uh, which wasn't necessarily wrong back then, but now it's a bit of injustice, um, is um, a a big focus in this year's Congress prompted by President Biden's uh, budget request for 2000 and fiscal year 2022, and which now have been championed by Chuck Schumer and and uh, in particular, Bernie Sanders um, is the inclusion of hearing care service. So, what this would happen, and, and, and my group and I have been advising the various Senate committees around this bill, where what Medicare would do then uh, is Medicare would begin covering hearing care services for for anybody who had hearing loss. So, basically, the the service of an audiologist to educate someone like Ann, to provide counseling, to say what kind of devices would you possibly need, where you're struggling, where are you struggling with communication, to help provide unbiased guidance from an audiologist, right? So those will always be covered. Um, then if you had more of a mild to moderate hearing loss that would be served by OTC hearing aids, is, uh, those people would buy their hearing aids on their own, which is possible. I mean, if a pair, pair of Air, Apple AirPods are 200 bucks, then you could buy your own Apple AirPods, but then if you still need a service, you need someone to help you learn how to use it, how to use your phone, how to figure out which is the best device for you, you could still go see the audiologist. So the service would be covered. So you might buy the device on your own, possibly if they're only 100, you know, a couple hundred bucks, but then the service would be provided. Then if you have a more severe hearing loss, and some people have that, about you know 5% of people, older adults, have a more severe hearing loss that certainly probably would not be served by over-the-counter hearings, they're not powerful enough, then Medicare at that point would begin covering the hearing aids as well as the hearing care service. So um, much of the current legislation has been proposed right now in, in the fiscal fiscal year 2022 budget bill, which was just sort of officially, the, the framework was just officially announced a few days ago in Congress and got passed by uh, the Senate, um, is that it would do exactly that. But that's the same framework that's now being proposed in this year's uh, fiscal, 20, fiscal year 2020, 2022 budget bill, which have advanced then and actually passes in a few months, fingers crossed, um, that would be the sweet spot. And do you think if this kind of um, process had been
1: available 10 years ago, you might have gotten hearing assistance earlier? Oh, I'm sure
2: I would have. I'm sure I would have.
1: I'd like to close by asking both of you about the perception of hearing loss by people who have it and people who don't. People who need glasses rarely shy away from wearing glasses, but hearing aids seem to be a completely different beast, as if there's some stigma attached to wearing them. And did you feel like maybe you didn't want to use hearing aids because people would know or there was ju- it, it just you just didn't want to do it?
2: I, I never felt that way personally, but I might be in the minority. Um... I will actually tell you uh whoever you might be i'm I'm hard of hearing. Could you speak a little more slowly and distinctly? Um, um, a lot of people won't do that. There is a stigma. uh people feel it acutely uh, i've I've had clients who were afraid that their wife wouldn't think as highly of them. uh I've had clients who were afraid who were real solid church members, and, and there are a lot of people like that in this community, um, who, who uh, didn't want to wear their new listening device to church because the, the minister might think that it's uh, 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 like an MP3 player and they're, and they're, <laughs> you know, they're not paying attention. Um, uh, and it was a real concern to this man. I mean, I felt terrible for him. Um, And, you know, we finally decided what to do about it, but we talked about that for quite a while. Uh, So, yeah, uh, there is a stigma and um, people just don't want to face up to the fact that they've come to this point in their lives. Um, So the people who came to us uh, and actually showed interest and volunteered for the program um, were a little bit, maybe a little bit unusual in that respect because they were willing to, to make that jump to say, OK, I've got a problem. Maybe these folks can help me. Um, uh, but we need to get to the place where everybody's comfortable saying, oh, I'm, I, I'm a little hard of hearing. Could you could you speak up or could you speak more distinctly? Frank, do
1: you see people have aversion to using a hearing aid, unlike an aversion to glasses?
0: Yeah, no, I think, Patrick, you're spot on. There, there's undoubtedly a, a stigma attached to uh, hearing loss and hearing aids for so many reasons. It's not it's not just one thing. For instance, right? It's um, has to the sense of getting old. The sense that you can't communicate as well. Not wanting really to be stigmatized with wearing the hearing aids. They look funny. I mean, there's so many reasons. But you know, I think this is one really important um, idea, though, which we were so gung ho in why I spent a lot of time um, being an advocate and you know, ultimately testify for Congress before the over-the-counter hearing aid bill, because that. Bill, when it goes into effect, actually later this year, and the regulations come out, that is a huge game changer. And the reason why I say that is, as companies like Bose, Samsung, Apple begin making hearing aids, you know, you can guarantee, and you know, tongue in cheek, when Apple makes hearing aids, um, you know, it, it may look just like the Apple AirPods Pro, right? So, as you know nowadays, there's, I would say, there's no stigma with wearing your Apple AirPod Pros around or ear, your hearables. Everyone does that, right? So, what's going to shift very rapidly then, as I think as these roll into the market, is that. Well, is that, people, is that person wearing AirPod Pros or are those the AirPod Pros plus with a hearing aid feature, for instance? It becomes one and <laughs> the same, right? Yeah. So in a, in a quest
1: to learn more about podcast demographics, I went looking the other day for the average age of podcast listeners. I, I didn't find that. But I did learn that three-quarters of podcast listeners are under the age of 55, generally before they find themselves saying, what? Or could you say that again? over and over again during the day. So I hope that what we'll be talking about today is resolved when they start looking for hearing aids. And thank you both for joining us today. I've learned a lot and um, I, I hope that the road is being paved better and better for people with hearing loss. Thanks, Pat, it was an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you, Pat.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute... Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.